You're listening to Ludophilia. I'm Richard Moss. Play is an old concept. Every language has a word for play. And most ancient civilizations had a culture that celebrated some aspect of it in some subset of society. But in our modern world, the idea of play as a positive thing emerged gradually. In the Middle Ages, Europe had very little patience for play. Children needed to work, and adults needed to work. They had gambling games like cards and dice, but, but these were not very playful rituals. Nor were they thought of in terms of play. They're just ways to pass the time, let off steam, maybe make a little extra money. Our modern understanding of play owes much to the thinking of one man in the 17th century. It's right on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, which is maybe not the first thing you'd think of when looking for foundational ideas and the importance of play. The Industrial Revolution eventually gave rise to things that greatly aided the cause of a society at play, like eight-hour work days and other labor laws, mass production of toys and so on. But it also arguably so harmed and trivialized play in the Western world that we still suffer under its ideals of productivity. Now even so, this man may have invented the notion of play as a key element in formal education. You may have heard the name John Locke before. He had a huge influence on political thinking, religious tolerance and modern governance. His ideas about civil and religious freedoms are still, still discussed, discussed at length, length today, and still important. He laid much of the groundwork for the Enlightenment, which brought science and reason to the fore in the late 17th, early 18th, 18th century Europe. But he also made important contributions to educational theory and astute observations into how children learn and how they play. What he observed, basically, is that the two, two go, go hand, hand in hand. hand. That play should be as much a part of learning as learning is a part of play. He disagreed with the pervading view of the time that play should be suppressed from education. And this wasn't just something that he cooked up one day out of the blue. Both Locke and his ideas were a product of their time. To explain why, I need to go into some backstory. John Locke was born in 1632 in a village called Rington. It's in the northern part of Somerset County, a fairly remote place in the southwest of England. It's about a 45-minute drive from Glastonbury, where the five-day music festival is held every year. Locke was luckier than most. His father was a legal clerk and Civil War veteran who used his connections to put young John into Westminster School in London, one of the best schools in the world. The headmaster, a stern man called Dr. Busby, believed in iron discipline, to the point where he even refused to take off his hat to honour the king during a school visit. The students, he said, could not see him as a lesser man to anyone. Even the ruler of a mighty global empire. Locke was of a, a kind of a delicate, sensitive nature, so he despised this disciplined confinement in his school life. 
He went to university in Oxford, where again he clashed with the prevailing systems. After completing his undergraduate degree, he stayed on university to teach undergrads and to assist in administrative tasks. He studied further too. He read the works of French philosopher Michel de Montaigne, but not the classical writers of Greece and Rome from over a thousand years before. He began to develop his own philosophy, one that seemed at odds with the ways of the time. He cared for freedom of expression, religion, and most importantly of thought. He believed in pragmatism, in common sense, not traditions and half-baked ideas about the guiding hand of discipline, and he'd happily change his opinions if proven wrong. My, My hand, hand shall, shall be the forwardest to throw it into, into the, fire. the fire, he once wrote. And what he really wanted was to learn the nature of his own mind, and the nature of those of others, not as a collective, but as an individual, as distinct selves. In 1667, Locke became the personal physician for the first Earl of Shaftesbury. Shaftesbury is a town in Dorset, which is just to the south of Somerset, where, if you recall, he, when he wasn't up. attending to his patron's needs, he drafted and redrafted and redrafted and redrafted again and again and again. A series of lengthy philosophical essays about humanity, government, education, religion. He remained loyal to the Earl through a failed campaign in 1679 to prevent the Duke of York, James, a Catholic, from succeeding his brother Charles as king, and through a plot soon after to prevent the royal succession through armed resistance, resistance that led to the Earl's exile to the Netherlands. Now some wider context, the English Civil War, which Locke's father fought in, had religion at its core. That wasn't the only thing at stake by any means. The role of Parliament was probably the major issue. But the war was in part to determine how Christianity fit into England. Decades later, when Locke was writing these things, it was an ongoing concern. The Earl worried that as King, the Duke would detain or exile his subjects without the rule of war or any proper trial. That same year, 1679, the Earl's parliamentary friends managed to push through a bill called the Habeas Corpus Act, which is a forebear to the Bill of Rights. It strengthened the civil freedoms and that, that had been set forth in Magna Carta centuries earlier, and it made it harder to arbitrarily or unlawfully imprison someone. Now all this is to say that Locke was at the centre of some pretty important efforts to lessen the power of the king and to increase tolerance towards different views within some confinements such as public safety and the sanctity of English law. And this is not necessarily something that he saw echoed in the schooling system. And he thought that the iron rule of the headmaster and the other authority figures in school was counterproductive to effective learning. He believed that children are born with a blank slate or empty tablet. Their minds were empty and unprejudiced and ready to be shaped by experience. He believed there's no such thing as innate human principles. 
things like do unto others as you would have done unto you. And that I've always tried to follow. Those are learned moral views that are rarely present in children and often lacking in adults too. Now that said, he also believed that every person has certain natural tendencies, so not completely a blank slate. Everybody has inclinations and inherent capacities that are unique to them. Our individual temperament and disposition and age all make a difference in how experiences shape us. Everyone's natural genius should be carried as far as it could, but to attempt the putting another upon him will be but labour in vain, and what is so plastered on will at best sit untowardly, and have always hanging to it the ungracefulness of constraint and affectation. That he found through observation can be done very effectively through a mentor, a friendly relationship between teacher or parent and student where the older person advises the younger not with a tone of authority, but with a tone befitting an equal. equal. And it also helps, he believed, to play. He saw how naturally inclined children were to play. And he sought to encourage it. At one point, he wrote to a friend, I am so much for recreation that I would, as much as possible, have all they do be made so. In his book Thoughts Concerning Education, he wrote, I have always had a fancy that learning might be made of play and recreation to children, and therefore we should smooth their way and help them readily forward. And he also wrote, they might be brought to desire to be taught if it were proposed to them as a thing of honour, credit, delight, and recreation, or as a reward for doing something else. And if they were never chided or corrected for the neglect of it. Sounds a bit like discussions about homework. So just as today, there are many who seek to reform education, to push it more towards guided forms of play, Locke argued that an educator's chief art is to fill children's lives with sport and with play. Well, unfortunately, he gave little heed to the playful values and ultimate cultural importance that art and music have. And he, he, he paid a little bit of a kind of lip service to art. He, he said that everyone should learn to draw so that they can sketch on their travels. But he made no mention whatsoever of music. He, he, he discouraged the learning of music. He didn't think it had any use. But even so, he had an idea that in some ways today is still on the periphery a semi-controversial criticism of the schooling system in many countries, that children should not be made to work until their minds and bodies are ready for it. Now Locke realised that the tricky part was to find a way to preserve that free and easy active spirit, while at the same time drawing the youth towards more productive passions and away from bad habits. In How to Bring Up Your Children, he stated that kids should have many playthings and toys of differing sorts, but should only be allowed to play with one at a time, so as to teach them to treat their possessions well and to discourage carelessness. 
They should also not have too many playthings, only what they need to develop their minds and bodies. That way we can prevent them developing pride and vanity before they even learn to speak. Clearly he observed mostly wealthy children, and he noticed that they grew so accustomed to abundance, to constantly receiving more toys, that they began to feel as though they never had enough. What more? What new things shall I have? they ponder. Luck thought it better for children to make their own playthings, borrowed from the natural world pebbles, sticks, sand, snow, folded or crumpled paper, or anything else that adults readily have available in the home or, or just outside. Luck thought of ideas as units of mental content, created by inner and outer experience. Inner experiences and memories, imaginings, reflections, doubts, desires. Outer experiences are sensations, sight, touch, sound, and so on. Ideas at their core are simple, but they can be combined and stacked into ever more complex ideas. A glass of water might conjure images of the glass and the clear liquid within it, and sensations of how it tastes, how it makes you feel to drink it, how heavy it is to pick up, the sound it makes as the water pours into the glass. A person of authority, to give a different kind of example, is the idea of the individual combined with the idea of the particular type of authority they have, and the relationship that idea causes them to have with those people whom they hold power over. He had a whole multifaceted classification system, but I won't bore you with the details. Suffice it to say, the simple ideas are clear, distinct, easily understood. As they're really simple to break down into constituent components. But complex ideas are intricate, confusing, and they're often rendered inadequate or false by our perceptual ability to place them in the world around us. So if ideas, both complex and simple, divisible like chemical compounds and elements from the periodic table, are the essence of us, and if they are shaped from experience, then it follows that we need to seek out experiences, especially when we're young. Especially when we're young. Experiences that generate new ideas and new connections between ideas. Because that's really what education is. It's knowledge in the form of complex ideas. Created by both inner and outer experiences. Simple ideas related to each other make complex ones. Through a mixture of reasoning and observation, Locke realised that this comes most effectively from play. Because play encourages us to, to find new connections between different ideas. His thoughts concerning education were well received. The treatise was reprinted several times and translated into five languages. It was a key text in 18th and 19th century educational theory. It helped shape educational systems into what they are today. And it reportedly had a very big influence, maybe not directly, maybe through the, the people who carried Locke's theories forward on the Montessori style teaching, which is maybe not so common, but has shaped the thinking of Google and Amazon's founders, and Will Wright, the designer of SimCity. And Locke's theories 
also in a pretty cool bit of trivia that I read online, can be traced maybe not directly, but certainly in there, to Sesame Street. A show that prized experiential, playful learning strategies and that I, like, I'm sure many of you watched as a kid. And whenever I think of Sesame Street, I still can't get past that brilliant number 12 pinball count song. And that fantastic syncopated rhythm. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Love it. Ludophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss. If you like the show, you can support it on Patreon or PayPal, uh, or just subscribe and share with your friends. I'm finally on top of things now after working on my manuscript for my book pretty much the whole back half of last year. So I think we will be returning now to a monthly-ish schedule from here on out. And on that note, I'm going to leave you today with a snippet from episode 9, which will drop sometime in February. It's one I've been wanting to do for a really long time, so I'm very happy to be sharing this with you now. Until next time, stay curious, keep playing, see ya. printing it in the shop and it was common for printers to hold up an ad you know that, that really really fascinated them usually you know some bodacious babe and you would hold it up and go wow you know she's hot or she's not hot and I just remember seeing the first Macintosh ad where here I was just licking and sticking you know this is in the early days before digital printing and we would just tape down the negatives in registration and when we got the ads from from Newsweek it was pretty it had already been laid out. It was pretty simple work we were doing. And the, the, the first Macintosh ad where it said, you too can be a knowledge worker, or at least that's what I remember it as saying. And here I was just a kind of a drone, you know, working on these, printing these magazines. And I held that up and everyone just kind of stared at it. Like, you know, where's the, where's the woman? Where's the, but it just hit me, you know, and I, um, I saved my money until I could buy a Macintosh. <laughs>